If you will, open in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I have been gearing up to preach on this passage for three weeks. Prepared, gotten ready, it snowed. Prepared, gotten ready, and then the ice was coming. Well, uh, finally, Lord willing, who knows, could be an earthquake, Lord willing, we'll actually look at this text in the next couple minutes or so. It is good to see many of you that I haven't seen in three weeks, so glad you're here. I see a number of you that I don't know. Glad that you're here with us. Uh, you'll find in the bulletin there is a, a visitor sheet, so if you wanted to uh, fill that out, we'd love to get any more information. Uh, if you want to share any of your information with us, any ways we could care for you or help you, please feel free to do so. Well, we are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8-15. through 15. And if you've read this text ahead of time, you'll know that this is probably one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. Why are we preaching on that today? Answer, because it came right after the passage we preached on last week, or, or actually three weeks ago. You see, what we're doing here at, at Greenbelt Baptist Church is we're just working through books of the Bible. And that means that we're forced to deal with whatever is in the next section. That's by design. That's on purpose. We think that's the best way for us as a church to be impacted with the full counsel of God's word. Because, you know, if I just picked my, my, the passages that I was most excited to preach on, you know, you know, you get a lot of passages that were Mike-like passages, as my wife says. That's a, a passage that just resonates with me. And, and you would not be exposed to many other things that you need to be exposed to. It's sort of like if... You know, you probably have two or three foods that might be your favorite food. And suppose they're healthy, but it would not be healthy if you ate those foods all the time. You need a balanced diet. And so also we need, to be strong Christians, growing Christians, we need all different passages of Scripture to help us grow. And this method of just preaching through the Bible, uh, whatever comes next, I think helps us to grow. That's in this passage, we, we've come up against one that is uh, quite... Um, out of step with what I think our mainstream culture would tell us. I'm going to read the passage and then make three points about it. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you for your help as we look at this passage. Lord, we pray that what is said would be true, be edifying, and that we would, as your people, put ourselves under your word to learn from you and be instructed by you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to look at three things in this passage. First, uh, 
three points. Number one, and there's an outline in your bulletin too, if that's helpful for you. Number one, how do we handle passages that are out of step with mainstream society? That's not actually directly from this passage, but I think it's a good preliminary point to make before we get into it. Number two, what is Paul actually saying here? Number three, what reason does Paul give for saying this? So first, how should we handle passages that seem out of step with what our mainstream society is teaching these days? Well, I want to tell you a story about a conversation I had with a woman in Starbucks. I have the most interesting conversations there. It's, it's fun. Go there, sit down. Who knows what's going to happen? Well, I sat down uh, one day, and the, the woman next to me was uh, reading this passage from her Bible. She had her Bible open. She was reading uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I opened my Bible up, preparing the sermon, and we struck up a conversation because we realized we both loved the same book. And as I talked with her, it became really apparent she was a believer. She loved Jesus. She loved God. Uh, We talked about our shared love for Charles Wesley's hymns, And Can It Be, is one of my favorite and her favorites. It seemed like she was a sister in Christ. We, we, We had a lot in common. She was in seminary studying to be a pastor. And she was studying this passage in, second, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 because she had to wrestle with what it was saying to her. Because the plain meaning of the passage would seem to indicate that, that she really didn't have a role being a pastor in a church. And she told me that as she and her friends were, were wrestling with this, they, they had to come to grips with the fact that if they were to be, continue in their path to be pastors in the church, these women to be pastors in the church, they had, to, uh, they had to realize that the Bible might actually be wrong. That, that not every part of the Bible was true in the same sense. And she told me that, that that was a really scary way of reading the Bible. And I think she's right. I think she's right. Because if we say that not all of the Bible is true, that the Bible has parts that are wrong, it shakes our entire Christian faith. See, our our faith as Christians rests on the authority of Scripture. Think about some of the things that we believe as Christians that are so foundational to our our, our Christian life. We believe that when a, a person dies and they're put into the ground, that their body is actually going to come out. Think about that. That's foundational to our Christian life. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And yet we have no empirical evidence for that whatsoever, right? No no bodies come out of the grave, right? We don't see that normally happening. Yet to be a Christian is to believe that the body in the ground is like what a... To think... Sorry. To be a Christian is to think of the body in the ground like a farmer thinks of the seed in the ground. They fully expect it to come out. No farmer is going to plant a field expecting the seeds just to stay there. So also we as Christians, we believe that those who die in Christ will be raised again, have a new body. We don't have a shed, a shred of evidence for that outside of the authority of Scripture. And why do we believe that those in Christ will be resurrected unto new life? Well, it's because God the Son took on human flesh and died on the cross to take the penalty for the sins of his enemies, those who were were rebelling against him. Those are the people for whom Christ died. Again, why would we believe such a crazy truth that the God of the universe would would come down in human form and die on the cross for his enemies? Answer, by the authority of Scripture. So friends, if we give up the authority of Scripture, we give up the Christian life. 
There's no way to hold to um, the truth of the Christian faith that, that, that we come to understand as, as believers, the gospel. There's no way to hold to that apart from the authority of Scripture. So if you give up the authority of Scripture, you give up everything. And that's why this issue of roles in the church is not merely about roles in the church. It's about what do we think of the authority of Scripture? And are we willing to put ourselves under Scripture no matter what it says? And think of it this way too. If, if we let our culture determine how we read the Bible, then at the end of the day, the Bible is powerless to speak to us and our culture. And, and we know that we need to be redeemed. We need to be changed. Our culture needs to be changed. So what we need then is not a Bible that we change and inform by our understanding of culture. Rather, we need the Bible that will be willing to speak to us and change our minds about several fundamental things, about the way we live. We need a high view of Scripture. There's really no other option. To to be a Christian is to have a high view of, of the Bible. So, how do we handle passages that seem out of step with the mainstream of society? Well, we're driven to the fact that the answer is we must figure out what they say, believe them, and obey them. That's our only option as believers. Now, that leads me to the second point. What is Paul actually saying here? And the whole passage, it's, it reeks of controversy, right? All, all these things are, are things that, uh, you know, before I was a Christian, I never dreamed I would stand up in front and talk to a bunch of people about. But nevertheless, we want to hear God's word on these matters. So here's what Paul says. Start with verse 9. Likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Now, I've been helped in understanding that passage by a historian named uh, Bruce Winter, and, and he writes a lot about the background of the first century Uh, back then, the world that Paul and Timothy would have lived in. And he uh, has uh, has, uh, suggested, and no one really uh, contradicts his scholarship here, but he suggested that there was at the time something of a a Roman feminism. Uh, Basically, there were women who were starting to give excessive attention to their bodies because they they wanted their bodies to be on full display. They wanted people to to be drawn to them, so they dressed in very revealing clothing. They spent a lot of time and effort to have these elaborate hairdos. They, they, were, they were working to draw attention to themselves. And they were doing this because uh, it was really, at the end of the day, uh, idolatry of the female body. They, they wanted to draw attention to themselves. And, and this was working itself into the worship services. So people were gathering together, and, and the focus wasn't on Jesus. The focus was on, oh, you see what so-and-so is wearing, or so-and-so has adopted this new style. And, and Paul uh, says that that ought not to be. Now, that background is helpful because the point here is not that it's wrong to braid your hair or to wear gold. I mean, lots of people are wearing gold today, right, on their fingers. Paul is not saying that's wrong. What he is saying is wrong is to come to church and dress in a certain way to try to attract attention to yourself rather than to come to church to draw attention to Christ. I mean, friends, when we come and gather together as an assembly, 
our focus ought to be on Christ, and our mindset that we come together is to how do we help one another draw attention to Christ. So the principle here that, that Paul is working with transcends what we wear. It's about our mindsets. When we come to church, do you come to church with the goal of helping other people draw their attention to Christ? Now, I, I love the way Paul talks about this here. He, he uses uh, language that he uses often in Scripture with the idea of putting off and putting on. Don't, don't put on this elaborate clothing in order to draw attention to yourself, but you know, put that off and put on good works. That's what he's saying here. And that's really important because there is, and maybe you've been in these churches or been in these circles, uh, there is an approach to holiness that some Christians adopt that, that puts off all these bad behaviors, but in the end leaves the believer stark naked, right? So yeah, we need to put off the bad behaviors. Don't get drunk. Don't gossip. Don't, you know, fill in the blank. We can understand all the bad behaviors that we need to put off as a Christian, but please, put something else on. Put on good works. That's what's fitting for a Christian. Notice the language that he uses here. It's, it's, um, he says it's proper. There's a, a fittedness to good works with our profession as Christians. That's what we, we belong wearing. We belong wearing good works. And good works, if they're truly good, never draw attention to ourselves but rather draw attention to Christ. Now, I want to focus in on one of the things that he says that we ought to put off, and that is immodesty, that we should wear, be modest. Now, that is uh, quite, there's quite a bit of confusion about that in the world today. So I think it would do, we would do well to focus in on that one a little bit more. There are two wrong ways to think about our bodies that stem from one common problem. And that is that we see our bodies as separated from who we are. So try to get here a little bit of depth into what the Bible thinks about modesty. So put on your thinking caps here for a second, and we're going to look at a, a biblical view of modesty. I think that will help us as we live in our culture that's very confused about this. So, so there's two wrong ways that people can approach our bodies. Their, their bodies. First is that we view the body as something evil and shameful, something that has this poisonous effect to cover up your body because you should be ashamed of it. Uh, you know, cover up your body or to let the devil out, as I heard one person say. It, it views our body as something inherently shameful and wrong. The other approach is that our bodies are merely objects of desire, so we should put them on full display. You shouldn't be ashamed to dress or not dress in whatever way you want probably picked up on both of these approaches at some point in, in your, your life. And they're both wrong because they look at the body as if it were simply an object, if it could be reduced to a mere object. But the Bible says that our bodies are part of our total relational nature. We are created for relationship. That's what the Bible says. God made humanity male and female, and he said it's not good for man to be alone. We are made for relationship, first with God and then with others. And our bodies even, our physical bodies, are part of that relational design that God has for us. I mean, think about it. You know this because, say you're, you're talking to a friend that you haven't seen in a while. You can talk to them on the telephone or, 
or text, but it's a different thing when they're physically there with you, isn't it? God created our bodies to have this relational component to them. So answer this question. Why is pornography so bad? It's rampant in our culture, isn't it? Why is it so evil? Pornography is bad because it views a person, usually a woman, as simply a body. A body to be used for the pleasure of another body. Pornography reduces us to mere bodies. It objectifies the person. One person put it well. Pornography is wrong not for what it exposes, but for what it obscures. In revealing the body, it obscures the person. Now, there is a place where our bodies should be fully revealed without any obscuring of the person, and that is in marriage. And we see that beautifully portrayed in the book of the Bible, even, called the Song of Solomon. If you've read that book, and you should, you'll know that the lovers in that book, it's, it's a, a romantic book. It's, it's a song of love about physical desire and physical pleasure. And it talks about every aspect of a, each other's bodies. The lovers describe each other's bodies in all, in, in everything. But they never reduce each other to a mere body because the way they talk about each other's bodies is in the context of the total person. So, for instance, the man says to the woman, your neck is like a tower. He's not saying, oh my, you look like a giraffe. It's always good to read that book with a good commentary next to it so you understand what he is saying. But what he's saying there is that, see, a tower would be a symbol of dignity and and honor He's saying to her, your neck is a symbol of your dignity and honor. And the man understands that the tenderness of her breasts expresses the tenderness of her character. A character he knows because of his total relationship with her. He's not reducing her to a mere body. He knows her as a total person. It is only in marriage that the full giving and receiving of each other's bodies can take place. It is only with that commitment, I will love you till death do us part, that it is safe to be fully revealed to the other. The giving and receiving of our bodies is a picture of the giving and receiving of our total selves. And that's what marriage is. Now here's where we get to modesty. Long setup for modesty. Modesty is what we do to protect the relational aspect of our bodies by saying that certain things are reserved only for that relationship with one person in marriage. Every culture has an understanding of what is public about your body and what is private. The private parts aren't dirty or bad or shameful, but they're reserved for the intimacy of the one flesh union in marriage. Kevin DeYoung, author I like a lot, he writes this. He says, The Bible's call to modesty is not based on the supposed naughtiness of the female form. God's good command to cover up is not meant to punish, but to protect. Modesty comes from the understanding of ourselves as image bearers of God, created for relationship, and that our bodies even are part of that being created for relationship. Modesty is recognizing the gift of the body and stewarding that gift well. Now, friends, I think that this is an understanding of our bodies and modesty that the world so desperately needs. Over and over again in our culture today, it reduces people, women in particular, to mere bodies. If you have an attractive body, good, you can live. So long as it stays attractive, and you better do everything in your power to keep it that way. But if not, you lose. 
And that puts so much pressure on young people, especially young girls. And what's crazy is the standard of beauty that they set up is not even realistic because the models that before they make it to the the magazine covers, they're airbrushed so they don't even look like that. Nobody looks like that. And yet this is the standard that's raised up. So friends, let's, as a church, as a community of believers called out from the world, let's recapture the idea that that uh, the body is created for relationship by, by recapturing this idea of modesty. Let's say no to the society's trends to reduce people, especially women, to bodies. Friends, let's pray for one another, especially the young women among us, that we would not look at ourselves and look at other people and not be looked at simply as a body. Let's pray that we can withstand the culture's pressure and see ourselves as images of God built for relationship. Let's pray for meaningful relationships within our body, our church body, where we don't reduce people to mere bodies. And let's pray for strong marriages where men and women feel safe to be fully revealed to each other. Well, now that we've covered modesty, let's move on to the next point. Teaching. What does this passage say about uh, a woman's role in teaching, which is perhaps the most contentious point. And by the way, if there's anything about this you want to talk about later, I'd be certainly glad to. A lot of stuff here, a lot of difficult ground here, so please feel free to ask me any questions afterwards. So, so what is Paul saying here? Look at verse 12 again. Zeroes in on one of the most controversial parts related to teaching. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. What's that mean? I think what Paul is saying there is that the office in the church for an elder, for a pastor elder, for the person who's doing what I'm doing now, right? Preaching God's word, teaching God's word in the public assembly, that office is reserved for a man. Now, why do I think that's what he's saying? Well, if you look at that phrase, teach and have authority, Probably what that means there, it's, it's the, same, the same category put in two different ways. He's talking about the same thing, teach and have authority. You see, the, the way God has designed the church is such that Christ is the head. Christ is the one who really has the authority in the church, right? That's what we acknowledge. He's the head of the church. And the way that he wants to establish his headship over the church is by having it that the leaders the human leaders who lead in the church do so by teaching. God doesn't give people authority in the church just to decide randomly, hey, I think we ought to do this, or I think we ought to do that. Uh, I think everybody needs to come wearing the color blue next week. I don't have authority to tell you that. My authority is to preach, is to explain scripture. That's God's design so that Christ stays head of the church, and that's not usurped by the human leaders. Human leaders, their authority is to teach. That's God's design. And, and God's design for that is that it would be men who would be the teachers of the church, those who are appointed to publicly declare God's word in the gathered assembly. Now, more support for that, for that's what Paul is saying, is that when you look at the next chapter, chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, if we get there, if it doesn't snow, uh, we'll look at elders and it talks about overseers. It assumes the overseers will be a man. That's different than what Paul says about the deacons and deaconesses. 
There's lots of freedom in the church for, for women to have many different roles. It doesn't restrict the women's roles in the church except for this one office, the office of a teacher, the public teacher of God's word. Deacons and deaconesses, they'll be the same. There'll be lots of areas in, in the church where men and women will interact. There's no hierarchy, one's above the other. We ought not to privilege a male opinion over a female opinion. It's just in this office of a pastor-teacher where Paul says, that's for men. We need to be equally clear what this is saying and not saying. When it says that women are to be silent, it's not talking about the broader life of the church. So, for instance, I love going to Daniel's house on Wednesday nights. we, We look at the cross of Christ. It's a lot of fun. And I like Daniel's comments. But I also really like the comments of all the women especially your wife. She's a very sharp one. It's good. We want the the contribution. We want the sharing. If you go out to lunch after the service, talk about the sermon. That's not a place for women to be silent. Oh, there are women that have to be silent. No, that's not what Paul's point is. And we should not uh, disparage women's comments, women's contribution. God made them in his image as well, and they have a lot to offer. So this passage is not restricting women's roles in the life in general of the church. It's merely uh, talking about one office in the church. Now, that's also a call for the men, the men here. Because God has designed it this way, we need men to lift up holy hands, as this passage says. We need men to be elders. We need men to be able to study so that they can teach the word and can teach publicly and can read uh, lead the church in that way. So if you're a man here, consider, what, why aren't you qualified to be an elder? Change that about it. Study to understand the Bible, to teach it, to, to have the character that the Bible would say, yeah, that person is going to be an elder in the church. You know, if this passage uh, in the original context was probably uh, at least as shocking as it can be today, but for a different reason. You see, back then, except for the, the, the feminism that was going on, in general, the, the church um, or the society had no trouble saying that women shouldn't be teaching. In fact, they didn't went, let women in the educational system in general. They thought it was rather unbecoming to have an educated woman. Th- this passage is radical for its time because it's saying, no, let the women into the assembly. They need to be taught like everybody else. They need to understand their Christian life like everybody else. This, this passage, its time, was, was having great equality in many areas of the church's life. So I think that's what Paul is saying. And an implication for us, when we, uh, we look at hiring a pastor, we look at hiring a man. When we, uh, if we change our constitution so that we recognize multiple elders, lay elders, we're going to look for men to fill that category. That's what we think it means to be faithful to Scripture. And remember, if we're going to call ourselves as Christians, and we're going to say that the Bible is our authority, we've got to obey it. That's the only way to do it consistently. Number three, what is Paul's reason for saying this? What rationale does he give? Well, if you look there at verse 13, he explains why. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's his rationale for for this teaching. Now, what is he getting at there? Well, uh, God created Adam first, and he created Adam with a mission. He gave Adam a goal. He said, here's what you ought to do. You have a job. Tend this garden. 
He, gave, he created Adam and gave him a task. And then he created the woman as a helper suitable for the man. And what you have there implied in that creation order is two different roles for men and women in the context of their family, in the context of marriage. What this doesn't mean are different roles for men and women inherently in every sphere of life. This is not saying that, men, that women have to have a, another role in business or in the government. It's not speaking to the broader life in general. It's saying there's, there's, there's two spheres in which the, the creation order is going to make a difference for how men and women are, are, relate to each other. The sphere of the family, because uh, God created Adam first and then uh, the woman to be a helper, and in the sphere of the church. That's what Paul is saying here. It's called headship in the Bible. Now, now, where did God get this idea from? Why did God think that he would make men and women and give them different roles? Make them equal, both in God's image, but give them different roles. Where did God come up with this idea? Answer is, he came up with the idea from looking at himself. Because this is how God operates. God is Trinity. That means that he is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, three individuals, equal in, in honor and glory. You get into real trouble if you try to say the Son is somehow less than the Father. Three members of the Trinity created in equality. Or not created, rather. Scratch that. Three members of the Trinity in equality. They're perfect, eternally so. And they have different roles. The Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. They relate differently. They have an organization where the Father is the one who calls the shots. And and then God created man and woman in his image, and he created them according to that same lines. He created them such that when they relate to each other, they would be equal in dignity and value, just as you get into trouble theologically when you say that the Son is less than the Father. So as you get into trouble theologically as well, in many other ways, if you say that women are less than men in any way. That that's, doesn't belong in the Christian faith or the Christian teaching at all. Equal in dignity and value, both made in the image of God, and yet, in certain spheres, the sphere of the family and the sphere of the way the church works with elders, there's going to be a difference of role. If we despise the idea of headship, because because it is patterned after God, guess what else? We're despising the very nature of God. If we think it's wrong to have two people who are equal do different roles, then we think there's something wrong with the very nature of God. Again, this idea of of the roles in the church and the roles in the family is never merely about roles in the church and roles in the family. It's, It's about what we think of the authority of Scripture, and it's about what we think of the very nature of God reason why we should embrace it. It's interesting that when you read some of the, the authors, some of the teachers in the church who, who want to take what's called an egalitarian position, that there's no difference between men and women, guess what they also tend to do? They tend to change the very nature of the Trinity. They, they, in order to take a position that men and women ought not to have any difference of roles in the church or the family, they also say things about the very nature of the Trinity that has never been taught by the church for the last 2,000 years, which just shows you the connection between our understanding of men and women and the very nature of God. We shouldn't be surprised with that connection. We're made in the image of God. So you start tampering with one area, you tamper with the other area. Now, 
Paul explains his reasoning further in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. What, what in the world is that saying? It, first reading, it could sound like, oh, women aren't supposed to be teachers because they could easily be deceived. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Because I think her being deceived, yes, she was deceived. That probably had more to do with the fact that Adam was the one who heard the instructions about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil directly from God. She had to receive them from Adam. So, so they're not quite, you know, didn't have the same thing that way. But, but think of it further. Adam was not deceived when he disobeyed God and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Does that make his sin better or worse? Worse. He knew what he was doing. At least Eve didn't know what she was doing. He knew what he was doing when he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if you were to say that women aren't to be teachers because they could be deceived, you'd have to also say that men aren't because they're just out and out rebellious. And that's not the logic here. I think instead what Paul is getting at is that the, uh, there's something happened back then in the garden that was a reversal of roles. When Eve, as the passage that Steve read earlier, when Eve ate the fruit, where was Adam? Standing right beside, silent. He remained silent when he should have spoken up. He was the one who took on the role of being silent, and he should have said, no, Satan, serpent, you don't deceive my wife. He should have crushed the head of the serpent right there and then. Should have gotten his shovel and done what you do to snakes that don't belong in certain areas. That's what he should have done. And Eve should have listened to her husband's teaching and instruction about the tree. That's what they should have done. But there was a confusion of roles. They did not keep the roles that they were given by God. And what happened? All kinds of confusion. And that's a lesson for us. That we need to follow the instructions that God has given us about how we ought to order ourselves as a church. If we don't do that, it's not so much about, well, who's teaching? Will it be good or bad? It's about, do we acknowledge God and submit to him and follow his clear instructions? Now, there is hope, though. Because what does Paul say right after that? And we're, we're getting down to the end. But look what, he's, look what it says in verse 15. Here's the note of hope. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, what does that mean? It's been a confusing verse to many, but I think the, the meaning is really clear because of what Paul has just been talking about. About Eve, uh, she was the one who sinned. But guess what happened after she sinned? And Steve read this. God came to her in her sin and gave her hope, tremendous hope. After she just rebelled against God, God gave her the hope that through her would come somebody who would crush the head of the serpent. That's what Adam should have done, right? Through her would come one who would do that. And, and she believed God's promise. So what did she do? She had, a, had children. That was her faith, believing God's promise, having children. She was saved because she believed God's promise, had children. And many godly women throughout Israel's history believed that same promise, continued having children so that the line would be preserved all the way up to one, one woman, Mary, had a child, and it was Christ. The one who would finally come and crush the head of the serpent. And that's, that's the hope. And that's why we shouldn't disparage a woman's role in the family or society. God gave that promise to the women that through her would come the Savior. That lifts women up in, in the Bible in a very, very high way. And Christ did come. And Christ 
perfectly submitted himself to the Father. Christ kept his role. Christ obeyed the Father completely in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. He followed God's plan completely, keeping his role as the obedient son. And then he took the penalty for all of us who haven't kept our role with God. He took the penalty for all of us who have rebelled against God and sinned against him. That we who have who created this whole mess in the first place may experience the reward of him, of Christ, who kept exactly what we should have. Friends, that is our hope. Our hope is not that if we can properly order ourselves, well, therefore, we will be able to figure it out and make it all right. Our hope is in Christ, who was ordered with God in the way that we should have been. He kept his role perfectly himself. And through him, then we can, if we persevere, live our lives in union with him, in fellowship with him, as we were created to do. This passage raises a number of very difficult points for us number of things that we've got to be honest, it may feel difficult for us. It definitely puts us at odds with the society around us. That's why the call for perseverance is real. We must believe God's word even when it's hard. We must let God's word speak to our lives and and change our minds about certain things that we might hold very dear about. God's word is the authority, so it has the right to speak into our lives. And we must persevere in our faith, continually trusting in God that that he is good and he will bring us out on the other side. Friends, let's put ourselves under God's authority, believing that his way of doing things is best. And when we do that, we will reflect him and point ourselves towards the gospel. And if that's the gain in following him, should we dare compromise what the Bible says just because it's out of step with our culture? I don't think so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness in your word. And Lord, your word challenges us. So Lord, we pray as some of us here may feel uncomfortable with the clear teaching in your word. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. We may submit ourselves to Jesus. The Jesus who submitted himself to the Father, took on human flesh and died on the cross for us. That Jesus who loves us. That Jesus who has our best interest in mind when he commands us. Lord, let us look to him and trust in him and obediently follow him. We pray this in Christ's name.